Those of you that heard Ty Gibson speak several weeks ago over the camp meeting live stream may remember that he made a fascinating comment about worship, about how they think that a third of all American Christian people who came regularly to worship in a church week by week before the pandemic will never be back because many of them have discovered how easy it is to worship online, relaxing in an easy chair with a cup of coffee on the table, with the best preachers on the planet available at the click of a mouse, with no need to rub shoulders with people who might rub you wrong. It's so effortless. But do you remember that he also said that that kind of experience isn't really worship at all? at least in the corporate sense, as we're admonished by Scripture to do, corporate worship is something that we do when we come together face-to-face to honor and praise God and interact with each other and bear with one another in love. Do you remember him saying that? You simply can't do that in permanent isolation. And I've been thinking about that comment over and over for the last couple of weeks. And so we're going to think a little bit about worship this morning, but from a perspective that we don't often consider. A few moments ago, we sang that beautiful song that helps us get perspective on why we worship together corporately. There's a phrase in that song, you sang it, that our lives are but a moment, but God is forever. We are the broken, but he is the healer. And around the throne in heaven right now, just as we are gathered here, around that throne in heaven there are gathered 10,000 times 10,000 worshipers and thousands of thousands of them. And they are singing, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Highest praises, honor, and glory be unto your name. And on Sabbath, We join with them there when we join together here. I'm going to begin this morning with a a very haunting statement in the Old Testament. It's a very profound statement written by Solomon in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. In verse 11, he writes, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has set eternity in our hearts, yet we can't understand what he's doing from beginning to end. How many of you tend to be a little bit nostalgic? Anybody here? I, I tend to be. Uh, you long for the good old days, the good old times? Yep, yeah, that's probably a function of getting old. I'm a little bit that sometimes. I don't like it when things, good things come to an end. Even something like a good meal. If Colette is fixing a good dinner, my favorite food, and I'm looking forward to it all afternoon and I can smell it, and then we sit down and eat it, and about three quarters of the way through, I began to feel sad that it's almost over. Or when we go on vacation, about two or three days before it's time to come home, a feeling of sadness starts to come over me, even though there might be two or three good days of vacation left. Of course, nobody is nostalgic over bad times. 
or painful events. Nobody's sad when a toothache is over. But every single one of us here can think of times in our lives, good times, sweet memories, that we wish could have gone on and on forever, but they didn't and they don't. They always end. Because we are bound and confined by this thing called time. Time mandates beginnings and endings. And the most difficult ending is life itself. The late Eugene Peterson was a pastor and author whose best-known work probably is the translation of the Bible that we know of called The Message. Once Peterson was visiting a monastery, and he was on his way with some monks to have lunch, and they walked past the graveyard there in the monastery, and Peterson noticed an open grave. So he asked which member of the community had died recently, and he was told, no one. That grave is for the next one. Every day, three times a day, as they walk to eat, the members of that community are reminded of what most of us spend a lot of our waking hours trying to forget. One of them will be next. We are mortal. But God says he has set eternity in the hearts of human beings. Endings make no sense. We long for more. There's a fascinating book by a Yale professor, Carlos Irie. It's called A Very Brief History of Eternity. Professor Irie says that human life as we know it is incredibly insignificant when you think about how brief it is relative to the cosmos. He writes, if you represent the entire history of our planet, Earth, as one 24-hour clock, it would run from midnight one day till midnight the next day. During that 24-hour period, our ancestors, Homo sapiens, would appear at one second to midnight. In other words, the human story on planet Earth begins at 11 p.m., 59 minutes, 59 seconds. That's when human history begins relative to the Earth. Of course, Carlos Irie is a materialist. He's an atheist. He writes from an evolutionary point of view. But it does provide a bit of perspective, doesn't it? He says that measured against the age of the earth, the history of human civilization is less than one flash from your iPhone camera. The Bible writer James compares our lives to a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It's too short even to be measured, even to have meaning, and yet God has set eternity in our hearts. Timothy Keller, who you know is one of my favorite writers, writes that eternity has as much to do with meaning as it does with time. Author John Ortberg says the same thing in a book entitled Eternity is Now in Session. It's a book that I have been rereading lately. Eternity has as much to do with meaning as it does with time. More, actually. Meaning is essential for human beings. We've got to have meaning or we can't flourish. In fact, without it, we can't even survive. But meaning can only be determined from a larger context. It's not just true about life. It's true about a lot of things. 
Let me illustrate it for you. Take words, for instance. If you have one word by itself, you really can't know what it means for certain without a larger context, without a sentence. You think about the word date, for example. Without context, its meaning is ambiguous. It might be a noun. The date today is July 10th. It might be a verb. I don't want to date you. Let's just be friends. So meaning can only be determined by the larger context. And this is true of our individual lives as well. Keller writes, every life by itself is an unfinished sentence. What does it mean? To look at one life, even one era of civilization, relative to the history of the cosmos, let alone eternity, is like looking at a word without knowing what's the sentence, what's the paragraph, what's the book. And here's the tragic thing. The predominant cultural view in our day is that life really doesn't mean anything. We're all just random blobs of tissue in an accidental universe in a nanosecond of time without meaning or significance or consequence. This materialistic philosophy, when fully embraced and followed to its logical end, always leads to hopelessness and despair. Here's the good news. Our lives do have meaning because they are part of a larger story, the gospel story of Jesus Christ. Our little stories are part of his story, and it is his story that gives life meaning, and that opens up the possibility that our lives don't have to have an ending. We can get in on this thing called eternity right now. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Now the gospel story, at least as far as human beings are concerned, has its beginning in Genesis. Genesis starts out with the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where humanity got its start. People sometimes wonder, what was God doing before that? St. Augustine, who lived in the fourth century and was an influential thinker in the Christian church, uh, anyway, somebody asked Augustine one day what, what God was doing before he created time. Guess what Augustine said? Now, I'll give you a hint. He was a, a thinker with a sense of humor. He said, God was creating hell for people that ask questions like that. But there is an answer to what God was doing before the beginning of time. And the answer is, he was living in community, in trinity, in eternity. And it was the overflowing sense of love and companionship and oneness between Father and Son and Holy, Holy Spirit that led God to want to create and share his love. So he made angelic beings, and he made heavenly hosts, and then, in a kind of climax to his creative work, he made a man, and he placed him in a beautiful garden in a pristine paradise called Eden. And he gave some special gifts to the man. First of all, he gave him a personal relationship with himself. Bible scholars have discovered recently that in Genesis... 
Eden is deliberately described using the language of a temple. Dr. Richard Davidson of the Adventist Seminary has written about this. Genesis 2 and verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The King James says to dress it and to keep it. Davidson says the verbs in this verse are almost always translated in other parts of the Old Testament as to serve or to guard or to worship. And that's temple language. These are the very same words used later in the Torah to describe the function of the priests in the temple. So what we have in the Garden of Eden is a temple. Adam and Eve are the priests, and the writer here in Genesis is conveying this idea. There was a real sense of intimacy between God and Adam and Eve in Eden. Now, the text says that in the cool of the evening, in the cool of the day, God would actually walk with them in the garden. Imagine what that would be like, to walk with God physically. That's what friends do. They walk together. Colette and I often do that in the evening. We walk around our neighborhood, and we talk about the things that are important to us while we walk. Friends walk together, not only literally, but figuratively. So first of all, human beings were made to have relational intimacy with the creator of the universe. That's the number one reason we were made. So you can see why denying the existence of God denies human purpose, which always ends in despair. But that's not all. God also gave Adam some specific things to do. Not only is he to take care of the garden, to guard it, and to serve But he is to name the animals. Now, God could have done that himself. It's not like he was running out of ideas or something. It's not like he needed a baby book of names. But he worked with Adam. The Bible says he would bring an animal to Adam to see what he would call it. And you can kind of imagine how that must have happened. How did Adam know what to call an animal? Actually, to do something like this requires significant intelligence. Because the root of all intelligence is the ability to discriminate, to classify, to pick out similarities and differences. That's what Adam would need to do in order to assign names to all the different animals, meaningful names. To ignore differences, to pretend that everything is the same, that's not a sign of intelligence at all. And we see a lot of that kind of thing going on nowadays. People claiming to be smart, but ignoring basic, obvious differences. And then God gives Adam something else. You remember that he's in the midst of naming these animals, and he notices that they all come in corresponding pairs. And he notices that he doesn't have a mate that corresponds to him. So God makes a woman, perfectly designed for him, not the same as he is, but corresponding to him. And at the end of the story, there's a comment made by the Bible writer in verse 25. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now this is not simply talking about physical bodies. You understand that, right? This is talking about relationships. This is talking about knowing and being known in the very deepest sense of the word. There was no hiding. There was no secrets. There was no fear. 
to know and be known fully and completely without reservation and with absolute trust. Because what God was building when he made Adam and Eve in the garden was community. And here's the thing. It's what he's still building in the earth. Community. Oneness. He's the only one who can do it perfectly. And that's what he's doing in the world right now. You know, people are the ones who try to separate and to divide and to turn one group against another group and to break apart. God brings together. And then God said to the human pair, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every creature that moves along the ground. They were given dominion, power, control, authority. It's interesting that God said to subdue the earth. Now, we usually associate that word with taming something that's unruly, like children. But the garden was beautiful, and the whole earth was very good. Why did God say, what did he mean by subdue it? Well, he meant to develop it. Not in the sense of exploiting it, but in the sense of advancing its beauty and usefulness. He meant to rule over it in goodness, to bring it to a higher state. And so right there in the beginning of the gospel story, God gives human beings intimacy with himself, intimacy with each other, and meaningful work to develop and enhance and beautify the created order. Spiritual intimacy relational community, and dominion over the created order so that people can use intelligence to create art and culture and build up the earth. And you remember that God put some trees in that garden. There was one very significant tree called the tree of life. What was the tree of life all about anyway? Well, to eat from the tree of life meant to live in spiritual communion with God an authentic community with people, and to work to help the earth flourish. And, of course, to never taste death. And that should have been the end of the story, right there. Genesis 2.25 should have been the final verse. The Bible should have been a very short book. They would have lived forever. And that's not the way things turned out. The very next verse, Genesis 3 and 1, talks about an enemy that lay in wait to wreck the community that God was creating, and wreck it, he did. And so the rest of the Bible is the story. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end, it's the story of God working to restore what was, what was lost, to rebuild the new community. That's the theme of the whole Bible, the gospel story, until you get to the very last chapters of the book of Revelation, and there you find the story has an ending. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Revelation is a book of endings. And in chapter 22, the final chapter, John writes of an angel who takes him on a little journey and shows him the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the street of that city. And on each side of the river uh, stands the tree of life 
and it has 12 kinds of fruit. It blossoms every month, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations or the peoples. Healing. See, we are the broken. He is the healer. No longer will there be any curse there. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve them. Notice how the language of the temple, it's, it's there again, just like it was in Genesis 2. Notice that verb, his servants will serve him. That's the verb Moses uses to describe the work of the priest in the temple. Notice, too, that the tree of life is back again at the end of the story, just like it was at the beginning. Only now it's not a garden anymore. It's a city with streets. The river is still there, just like it was back in Eden. I mean, this is unmistakable. John clearly wants us to know that we are back in Eden again, just as it was at the very beginning of the story, but with one major difference. It's no longer a garden. It's a city. Now, here's the interesting thing, I thought, to think about. Tim Keller says that the city here in Revelation, at the close of the gospel story, this is the city that Adam should have built back at the beginning when he was given rulership and dominion over a beautiful, glorious earth. But Adam couldn't build that city. Why not? Because Adam had eaten from another tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had commanded him don't eat that one. And when he ate that tree, sin was unleashed and perfection was lost. Dominion became domination and death came. Death came. Endings. Fallenness and death were handed down from generation to generation. It was not an inheritance of life that was passed down. It was an inheritance of death passed down from fathers to their children. What was to have been eternity in a perfect earth never came about. And so the whole story of humanity is the story of beginnings and endings and people attempting to amass power and control. And what we build is flawed and defective and subject to decay. The first Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden, fallen Adam, he couldn't build that city the book of Hebrews says Abraham couldn't build it either, and neither can we. We know this, although we try. But the second Adam, Jesus, he's done it. And in Revelation, at the end of the story, we see it. The city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now the dwelling of God will be with human beings, and he will live with them, John writes. This is spiritual intimacy restored just like the way it was in Eden. And the nations will walk by the light of the Son of God, and it says that the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. There won't be any more war or hostility between families or races of people. And then the vision comes to a conclusion with these words, and they shall what? reign forever and ever. This is dominion, lost by the fall, finally restored. Everything, the arts, the sciences, economies, everything will flourish as it was originally meant to be. So the tree of life in Genesis and the tree of life in Revelation 
are like bookends of the story of human civilization. Do you see that? We're not just a, a random cosmic accident. We have a story. And right now, we are living, as another author, Rob Bell puts it, between these two trees. Between the two trees, the tree of life in Genesis, Eden lost, and the tree of life in Revelation, Eden restored. It seems like we've been living between these two trees for such a long time. But in light of eternity, this era is nothing more than a flash from your camera. So why is it important? It's important because to understand humanity's true meaning, we've got to have the larger context. We've got to look beyond the trees, not between them. Beyond the trees, not between them. We need the larger view. When we moved here to Squim almost seven years ago now, we began looking for a house to buy. We were working with a, a realtor, Brody Broker. You've got some of you have worked with him. He asked us what we wanted, and we told him, well, the house doesn't really matter so much, but it's got to be in a place where we can see out. It's got to have a view. We'd lived in Maine for 20 years in a house under the trees. We couldn't see the horizon. We could never see sunsets, never see sunrises. Uh, just trees out every window. And trees are okay. I like trees. I plant trees. I just planted a Sequoia Sempervirens in my yard this week, a coast redwood. The little tag says it will grow to 300 feet. I'm probably not going to live to see that. But when we were looking for a place to put down roots, we told our realtor, we've come to this place of magnificent scenery here, so the house can be crummy. It doesn't matter. It's got to have a view. And that's what you need to understand life. You need a wider view beyond the trees. Not many people in our world today spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. But if we try to find meaning from the way we find life here between the trees, it's going to seem pretty pointless, ultimately. We're born, we live, we die. So what? Honest-hearted evaluation of the meaning of life solely from a between-the-trees perspective leads to despair. This is where all the honest and, and wisest philosophers of our age end up all the time. The late French, French existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he said it this way, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Without eternity, life is without meaning. And so it is without purpose. So to get beyond the trees is to find meaning from God's perspective, and God is not like us. God has no beginning, no end. He is not defined by or bound by time. He is not hurt or limited by time. He is not confined between the trees. He is eternal. This is one of the very most important attributes of God. And Leslie read it for us just a few moments ago from Psalm 90. 
before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Present tense. He is without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, Paul writes. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, John writes. He is eternal, independent of this thing called time, one whose origins are from old, from the days of everlasting, Micah writes. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night, Moses says. This is difficult for us to think about because we are bound by time. We are dwellers in it. You've heard the story of the fellow who comes to God and he says, so a thousand years are, are like a day in your sight, right? God says, yes. So a million years are just like a few minutes to you, right? That's right, God says. Well, then a billion dollars must be just like a penny to you. Something like that, yes. So God, the fellow says, can you lend me a few cents? Of course, God answers, in just a minute. God is eternal, but eternity is not defined by time. And there are some implications to this. For one thing, how often do you think that God is in a hurry? <laughs> we think, why isn't God doing something? Why doesn't he show up? I need him. Why is he so late? Even the prophets in the Bible struggle with this, you know. How long, God, will you let evil people prosper and flourish? But God's never late. God is never early. He's always right on time. How many times do you think God says something like, Oh my me, I wish I had a little more time. I don't think so. We say things like that, don't we? And the older we get, the more we, we begin to think it and say it. But God has all the time in the world and all the time out of the world. In fact, God made time. He understands it. He is independent of it. He is above it. He is extra time. That's one implication. Here's another since God is eternal, he's not confined to life between the trees. He is everlasting to everlasting. Uh, so from God's perspective, when does eternity begin? Really doesn't make much sense talking about the beginning of eternity, does it? You know, because eternity is not connected with time. Eternity is already in session right now. We don't think about this as much as we should, maybe. We tend to think of eternity as something that's going to start at some point in the future for us. A time that we won't have to work so hard. A time that we won't hurt so much. That we'll have all the time in the world to do the things that we like to do. And we'll never be rushed. We'll never be in a hurry. We can just kind of kick back and enjoy life, finally. But eternity is already going on. Right now. Right here. Which means we don't have to wait to enter into it. We can have it right now. Now it's true that immortality hasn't come yet, at least for, for us human beings. Immortality comes as a gift when Jesus returns. But immortality and eternity are not the same thing. Eternity is now in session. It's been running along just fine for a long time. 
Eternity is not waiting for life between the trees to end. It was going on way before Eden, and it will be going on way after Revelation. And I think our culture conditions people, and our understanding of science conditions people and pressures people not to think about this too much, to not give much serious adult thought to the relation between time and eternity and life between the trees. And the result is this. Not only have we lost the meaning of life, but we live like virtual agnostics and materialists. As if this is all there is. That's why Moses writes that beautiful prayer in Psalm 90. He says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, teach us to live our little lives here between the trees in the reality of eternity. Give us that wisdom to understand that not so much life as we find it and experience it now, it's, it's not normal the way we find it now. In fact, it's abnormal. Here's how John Ortberg puts it, and this is in your bulletin because I wanted you to be able to take this home with you. He says, maybe it's not God or eternity or miracles or the kingdom of heaven that's abnormal. Maybe it's life between the trees that's abnormal. Maybe God is watching all these people he's made who actually have all eternity stretched out before them, but they have been so lured by the evil one into living frantic, rushed, preoccupied lives who are so stressed and anxious that they have just stopped noticing things and being grateful for life and are unable to simply be fully present with God or each other. And maybe sometimes God just wants to yell at them and say, be still and know that I am God from everlasting to everlasting. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to get used to the abnormal and begin to think of it as normal? I mean, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, in the story of that great prison rescue in the Philippines in World War II. Remember how they got used to the abnormal and they just thought it was normal? We begin thinking the abnormal is normal and that it's good and right and worthy of celebration, the abnormal. Our whole culture is choking on this stuff right now. I think that all of us tend to get used to this, this depressing life between the trees, life as we find it, and we think, that's eh, just a normal old life. It's just day-to-day -day life. It is what it is. We think, that's a phrase I came to know very well a few years back when they were building our house. I'd never heard that phrase before. This was our first and only shot at building a house. Our life savings went into it. We wanted to get it right. And whenever I would say to the builder, Ron, you know, I wish we'd have given a little bit more thought to this, you know, maybe a window here. Man, I wish we'd have moved that door a couple of feet more that, that direction instead of where it ended up. He'd say, well, it is what it is. I hate that. Now, there's some wisdom in it, but there's also some fatalism in it, too. Some desensitization to what might have been. And too much of life, we're willing to write off and say, well, it is what it is. And when we do that, we deny the promise of eternity, the promise that we can have right now. 
When I was growing up, we lived in a little house in East Akron, Ohio, about 40 miles south of Cleveland. I may have told you this story before, but I'll tell it to you again. Akron is in the heart of the Rust Belt. It's where I was born and where I went to school all the way through college. East Akron was the working class side of town. The more affluent sections of the community were predominantly in West Akron. And the reason for that was, at least in part, because the wind blew from west to east. There was a lot of industry in Akron in those days, and the main industry was rubber. All the big rubber companies, Goodyear, Goodrich, General, Uniroyal, Cyberling, Firestone, Cooper, they all had sprawling factories in Akron. I mean, when I was a kid, every tire that went on every car in the United States was built in Akron, Ohio. There were forests of big brick smokestacks at the tire plants, and there was always smoke belching into the sky, and East Akron was downwind of all those smokestacks. And one of the chemicals used to make tires is sulfur. And you know how sulfur smells. It's got that very pungent odor. And whenever we would drive into Akron from the west to the east, and in those days nobody had air conditioning in their cars, and we all just drove with the windows down on a summer day, and you'd drive from west to east on the freeway through Akron, and you'd come to a point, uh, usually on the little rise, the crest of the hill, just at the Buchtel Avenue exit, overlooking the factories, where the stench of the sulfur and the tire-making smoke would hit you like a wall, even though it was invisible. You couldn't see it. But the interesting thing was this. We lived in this little neighborhood in East Akron called Goodyear Heights, downwind of all the stacks. We never really noticed the smell. We didn't notice it until we were coming in on the freeway from west to east. It was just normal. See? And then we knew. Then we knew. So you just think for a moment of everything that was lost or damaged as a result of Adam's choice to eat the forbidden tree in the garden. The common presence of genuine miracles face-to-face friendship with God, perfect relational intimacy between friends and between husbands and wives, the possibility of building just societies and governing fairly with authentic integrity, never having to settle for second best or living with an it-is-what-it-is mentality. That's what normal life was created to be, and we settle for the abnormal. I read an alternate Genesis story. It goes like this. God says to the man, Adam, I'm going to create a partner for you, and she will be drop-dead gorgeous to look at and lovely to listen to. She will understand all your moods. She will cater to all your whims. She will understand you. She will always think you were right. She'll watch all kinds of sports with you on ESPN, and she will never argue. And Adam says, wow. That sounds great. What's it going to cost me? And God says, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg and an eye and an ear. Adam says, well, what could you do for a rib? Think about that. We are so far from Eden. Right? We just keep settling for less. Brokenness in relationships division among races and cultures and nations, and the whole earth just groans. Paul says it's groaning like a woman in the, in the throes of childbirth on account of our, our sin and our, you know, 
on our own. Our destiny is to be born, live out our little lives, and then die between the trees. But God has another plan. He has set eternity in the hearts of men and women, and he put into motion a plan that had been in his mind, Paul says, from before the creation of the world, from the days of eternity, he sent his one and only son. And so into the gospel story comes another tree. Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. We are the broken. He is the healer. In Jesus, the cross has become the tree of life. What was meant by human beings to be an instrument of torture and death, a tree of death, has become, in the providence of God, the tree of life. It has become the hinge of history, and through that tree, we have been given, past tense, eternal life. That's why we come together here, week by week. It's not just to sing songs and, and hear music and listen to a sermon and see our friends, although those are good things. They all are good things. But it is to remember, above all things, above the roller coaster ride of your life and my life and our little successes and our little failures, this little camera flash between the trees, we gather to remember Jesus and what he has done on the cross and what he has done by coming out of the grave, how he was healed and, and he's healed us and has given meaning to our existence and we worship him and we thank him and we praise him and we follow him. That's why we come, because we have already been given eternal life. Already, we have it now. That's the perspective from beyond the trees, and you're not going to get it out there, anywhere. You've got to come together. Eternal life is explicitly defined in only one place in Scripture that I know of. In the prayer of Jesus that he prayed to God the night he went to the garden to wrestle back from Satan the rightful destiny of the human race. In that final prayer, Jesus said, Father, the time has come to glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people. There's, there's the authority, see? God had given the first Adam back in Eden authority. He has also given the authority to the second Adam. It's back. You granted him authority over all people that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? It's knowing God and knowing Jesus. It's why we were made. It's not about time at all or the endlessness of time or time that goes on forever, although it does that. It's about meaning, and meaning comes from knowing God. Eternity is not an illusion, as Jean-Paul Sartre mistakenly believed. It is very, very real, and God has set it in the hearts of people so that we might know our stories matter and our lives have meaning as we come 
to know Jesus as we walk with him, just like it was in Eden and just like it will be in all eternity. So let's sing together. Let's stand and uh